Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. For the past several weeks, Iranians, especially Iranian women, have taken bold stands against the nation's theocratic government, discarding their compulsory headscarves and cutting their hair. This isn't the first time that mass demonstrations have contested the control of the Iranian regime, but can they succeed this time? Joining me to discuss the situation in Iran and its relation to American policy is Gabriel Neronia, a, fo- a fellow at the Jewish Institute for National Security of America. Gabriel, and thank you for joining us. Before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your work for JINSA? Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Um, so I was actually uh, in the Senate for four years working for uh, Kelly Ayotte and then John McCain on the Armed Services Committee. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go work at the State Department, uh, where I was the special advisor for Iran for two years. Um, so I led the department's human rights work, uh, the communications, congressional relations, and then a lot of the sanctions uh, that we implemented as well. Um, since la- since June, I've been with the Jewish Institute for National Security of America, JINSA, um, where I write a lot about Iran from its nuclear program, sanctions, and, and now uh, a lot on what's happening inside Iran with these protests. So give, give us the back for those who maybe haven't been following the news uh, from Iran as closely. What's what's going on? What, what happened? So um, given a little background, um, one of the key pillars of the Islamic Republic, um, which is the formal name of the Iranian government, um, has been the sort of control over women, particularly over their hair. Um, and so the compulsory hijab is required throughout the country. Um, and they, in, back in 2005, they actually set up a morality police um, whose job is to go uh, on the streets of Iran. And if women don't have their hair covered properly, they'll go throw them in vans and take them to re-education centers. Um, so a little over a month ago on September uh, 12th or so, um, they pulled over this this woman um, who was visiting Tehran to visit her family, threw her violently into a, into a van, um, and then at, a, um, at one of the re-education centers, uh, it appears that they beat her violently. Um, she went into a coma and died on, on September 16th. That set off this huge mass uh, protest that we've been seeing in Iran for the past month. Um, often led by women, but not exclusively. There's a ton of Iranian men who are fighting alongside their sisters and girlfriends and wives and, and mothers saying, we're, we're, one, we're done with the morality police. We're done with these attempts by the regime to control women. Um, but it's also just really anti-regime protests um, writ large. And a lot of people are chanting on the streets, death to the dictator, death to the regime, death to the Ayatollah. And so a lot of them are just calling for an end to the whole system of government entirely. Um, They're fed up with the corruption, mismanagement, really everything from the top down. So how serious, like how serious have these demonstrations become as a threat to the, to the regime? Um, Pretty serious. So maybe I'll, I'll give a little background. There's actually been four, this is sort of the fifth wave of nationwide protests. Um, You saw the first small glimmer in 1989 we've actually sort of clerical um clerics protesting some of what was happening um in 1999 you saw students um protest the shutdown of of a um of a moderate regime moderate newspaper in 2009 you saw these massive 
protests. Two million people took to the streets protesting. This, this was the, the, the so-called green movement. Exactly. The green movement protesting basically elections that, that were overturned by the regime. 2019, but, but, and I want to make a point here because it's really interesting. Then those peace, those protests were all peaceful and they were just calling for the regime to sort of follow the rules that they had already set out. They weren't calling for an end to the regime. They were just calling for the regime to, to give them the elections that they had been the, promised. The, the, the regime, the regime has a, a, a constitution, I guess, and it's just it to follow, yeah. follow the, we're okay with you guys if you follow the rules that you said, but you're not following. It, precisely, precisely. And a lot of the human rights things we're seeing now is also similar things. There's there's sort of a, something similar to a Bill of Rights for Iranians to peacefully assemble to uh, for religion and freedom and again, and other human rights, which, again, the regime just violates its own its own constitution all the time. Um, Twenty nineteen comes along and um, there's sort of a spark, which is the regime cuts gas subsidies and it unleashes this mass wave of violent protests, not calling for sort of adjustments or reform to the system, but calling for an end to the system entirely. Um, and that protest was suppressed brutally by the regime. Um, they took tanks and heavy machinery out on the streets and massacred about 1,500 Iranians in the space of four days. Um, so when these protests started uh, this time, I was really quite concerned that we were just going to see a repeat of that, where the Iranians, the, the government was going to roll out the tanks, massacre civilians, and that was in sort of call it a day. Um, I've been very pleasantly surprised to see that they haven't been able to do that, in part because I think this is something that is uniting huge swaths of Iranian society, not just those who hate the regime, but also people inside the regime, women who otherwise might appreciate certain parts of it, but are saying, yeah, this, this is too much. You can't kill a 22 year old woman because she didn't wear her headscarf. Right. That's, that's just wrong. So, so, so you, you think that even the sort of mushy, for lack of a better word, mushy middle people who sort of at least go along to get along with the regime are starting to say, Hey, wait a minute. This is, this is not okay. Yes. And, and look, you've, over the last 42 years, the regime has slowly lost more and more segments of its sort of key core constituencies. Um, it's lost the students, it's lost the young people, um, it's lost the middle class, and it's lost a lot of even the upper middle class as well. They can't get what they want. Um, really, this is just becoming an oligarchy. Um, it supports advance the interests of the very top regime elite. It supports the interests of the clerics and not much else. Um, and that's one of the reasons that you're seeing um, this protest last so long, um, why it is in every single province. We've seen protests in every single province uh, across Iran. It, it cuts through really all the de demographics uh, of the nation. So, so whereas with some of the previous movements, either they weren't, the demonstrators weren't asking for as much, and then they were kind of limited to a single faction within society, whereas this one... One, they're asking for, for everything. They're asking for the regime to go. And they're also more widely supported. Yeah, I think that's true. And and it's sort of unclear. There's a lot of, there's some chance uh, and a lot of protesters here say, who will say, we stop calling us protesters. We want to be called revolutionaries. We want to actually end this regime. We don't just want cosmetic fixes. 
yes, we want an end to the treatment of the mistreatment of women, but we really want widespread societal regime change. Um, and I think that that cry is being heard by a lot more people. Is the, now this is sort of the key question, I guess, which I'm sure you'll ask me a second is, will it work? Can it actually topple this regime? I'm a little wary of, uh, I, you know, I don't see the signs right are, now. Are we, that, are we hopeful, but not optimistic? Yes, that's, that's a great way of saying it. We're hopeful, we're not optimistic. Um, we have, what we haven't seen yet is we haven't seen key uh, defections from the regime. We haven't seen the military apparatus crack. Um, and kind of important, we haven't seen the protesters really start getting weapons, occupying buildings, having any form of actual uh, semblance of, of what is typically revolutionary activity. If you contrast that with, say, Libya 2001 or Syria 20 from 2011 all, all, all the way through. Right, by Libya in 2011. Yeah, sorry, Libya, yeah, Libya 2011 or Syria. In those cases, they start farming, forming armies pretty quickly. They get weapons. They're doing the kind of things that you need to do to actually have a revolution. But but for but for now, in in around the state, the state infrastructure is being maintained, and the demonstrators are just demonstrating. They're not actually taking down the state infrastructure. Now uh, there there's some exceptions. So yes, but there's some exceptions. We've seen um, Molotov cocktails being made and thrown at. Um, at besiege installations, the besiege is who kind are, of like yeah. Who are, who are the who are the besiege? Uh, the best way I can frame, I call them the brute squad. They're a part of the IRGC. The IRGC is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, whose whose job is not that of the army to protect the borders. It's actually their key mandate is to perpetuate the revolution, the Islamic Revolution. Um, the IRGC writ large does that abroad by spreading terror throughout the region. The besieged, this, is, this is the group that Soleimani was the head of until he got killed in Iraq in 2020, yeah. right? So, he, so Soleimani was actually the commander of the Quds Force, which is kind of the external arm. Uh, the besiege is the internal arm. So they're the ones for responsible for maintaining order at home. Uh, and they're the ones who are, who you, if you see videos of, of Iranian government forces sort of shooting people on the streets, it's usually the besiege there. Um, so going back, so we've seen Iranian protesters throw Molotov cocktails at besiege installations, at their cars. Um, they love throwing cocktail uh, Molotov cocktails and burning um, posters of Soleimani and posters of Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, but again, what, what I keep telling folks is, look, if you want to take over this regime, um, instead of throwing a Molotov cocktail, you go in, uh, take over the installation, get the weapons. That's what you would actually need to do if you want to have a full-on revolution. We haven't seen that yet. Hmm. And that, and that's what would need to happen if it were actually going to be, be the one. Yeah. And part of it, there's this sort of idea, there's this question, um, is Iran Syria or is it the Soviet Union? And the Soviet Union, and this is, I think, what Iranians would love to see. They would love to see this be more like the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Union ends really without any deaths and without anyone firing a shot. It collapsed under its own weight. Um, it collapsed and, and, because and it no collapsed, one And it, it collapsed into a, into a state infrastructure that then carried on. Like the Russian Federation, the Russian yeah. Federation is what it is, but, 
you know, it the the Soviet Union collapses and then all the constituent states are states. Are- yeah, because you actually had this the Russian Soviet Republic. You had the Ukrainian Soviet Republic, the Lithuanian Soviet Republic, which were all kind of almost like states. Um, and then, yeah, it just sort of decentralized. Um, Iran has sort of interesting ethnic tensions. Um, but when I talk to Iranians, they are, you know, higher above almost any other goal is this paramount view, especially among Persians, um, that there will be zero um, changes to Iran's territory. They do not want changes to Iran's territory. They're they're almost willing, and it, it depends who I talk to. Some will even say, you know, it's actually, we'd rather keep the Islamic Republic if that's what it takes to keep Iran's borders intact. Um, it's this very fervent nationalism um, which sometimes might come at odds with uh, efforts to fight the Islamic Republic as as a regime, because mm-hmm. the Islamic because the Islamic regime has at least maintained the territorial integrity of Iran since it has come into existence. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the biggest threat to that was actually Saddam Hussein and, and the Iran Iraq War of the nineteen eighties. Um, but at the end of the day, that the border stayed pretty much intact um, from from nineteen seventy nine to today. So how has the Biden administration responded to uh, to these these demonstrations, to this apparent up, maybe a proto uprising? Uh, and how is it interacting with the Biden administration's expressed desire to restart the Obama era land deal? Yeah. So maybe, maybe it's actually useful to talk about what, what Obama did in 2009, what Trump did, and then because give a little scope to it. So in 2009, the Green Revolution happens and Biden um, is surrounded by advisors who we now know are actually largely agents of the Islamic Republic um, who had sort of infiltrated our, our think tank system. Um, and they convinced him that the best course of action was to stay completely silent, to not say anything about the protesters um, say nothing of the revel of the green movement entirely, um, and sort of fell for the Iranian propaganda line that that would undermine the protesters. Um, interestingly, Obama, President Obama himself, said last week that that was a mistake uh, and that he wished he hadn't done that. Um, President Trump and, and Republicans writ large were um, in complete opposition to that. Uh, and so, in 2019, you actually saw President Trump tweet. In Farsi, it was the only language other than English that he ever tweeted in. Um, I'm proud to say that I helped facilitate those tweets, and they were some of his most liked tweets ever. They're the most liked tweets in the Farsi language that have ever been out there, um, saying that he stood with the Iranian protesters um, in their fight for a free country. Um, and what we saw in 2019 was, which kind of took us a little off guard, was the regime's shutdown of the internet. And the regime's theory is if the reg- if protesters can't talk to each other, either by texting or by social media, where they're saying, hey, here's the protest videos, it's going to hurt their momentum. Um, so they in 2019, they shut off the internet entirely. This time around, we've seen targeted efforts by the regime to uh, shut down internet in certain cities where you have protests flare up in certain segments of society, they'll shut it off. Um, but it's really costly. It costs $37 million a day for their economy to be off internet. They're kind of like us. They telework. They have a lot of online businesses. It's, it's hard to do that. Um, so, and they kind of learned that in 2019. Um, so to their credit, um, the Biden administration's taken efforts to um, help promote internet freedom, 
Um, they're continuing work that we did in the Trump administration on those efforts. Um, we've seen uh, changes to treasury rules to help enable Starlink to get in there. And look, I'll, I'll give credit where credit's due. Um, the, the Biden administration has spoken out decently well in support of the protesters. Their big flaw, though, is that they're trying to still negotiate this nuclear deal with the regime at the same time that the Iranian people are trying to overthrow that very same regime. Um, and would love to talk a little bit about what's in the deal and why that would actually hurt that. Please go ahead. <laughs> um, so, look, the, the deal, which is a resuscitation of the 2015 deal, there's, there's a few aspects to it. There's basically sanctions relief and economic oil uh, sanctions relief in exchange for very short and small reductions in Iranian nuclear activity. Um, the reductions to Iran's nuclear activity would take them basically to what's called a six-month breakout period. It would take six months for Iran to enrich the amount of uranium it needs for a nuclear weapon. Um, right now, they're just a couple of weeks away. Um, but that's just the uranium side of it. There's a separate timeline, which is the weaponization. How can you take that uranium, that weapons-grade uranium, put it in a bomb, pair that bomb with, with some form of weapon to actually make it explode? That, according to the Iranians and U.S. Uh, intelligence, is still about a year away, and that wouldn't change in this new deal. So uh, the big problem with this deal is in 2031, which is, you know, we're just actually almost eight, year, eight years away. It's January 2031. Uh, all those restrictions expire entirely, and Iran can go straight back um, to getting a nuclear weapon in no time. So those are the, the restrictions. They're pretty meager. They don't last long. Um, and they're way worse, actually, than, than even the 2015 deal. It's a lot weaker. In exchange, Iran gets $90 billion day one of the deal. Um, so they get sanctions relief, all their frozen assets they get back. They get oil, all the oil sanctions released. So Iran can pump, uh, right now they're pumping about a million barrels of oil a day. They can go up to two and a half, three million barrels of oil. All that money goes, and we know this because we've seen their bank accounts, it goes straight into their terror programs and their military programs. It doesn't go to fund hospitals and roads and schools, which is what the Iranian people want. It goes to their military. Um, and so what we saw in 2015, 2016, 17 was after we released sanctions, we saw Iran's terror activity massively increase. Um, and we know that if that happens again, if we release sanctions, that's exactly what's going to happen with Iran's military today. Um, we have a lot of data to show this. Um, the Iranian uh, supreme leader himself has actually said that if you get sanctions relief, the priority is, is sort of continuing the revolution, continuing their terror programs abroad. Um, and we also know it's going to hurt Iranian protesters. Um, this year's budget um, which they've been able to export a lot more oil this past year because Biden hasn't enforced sanctions. They put 300% budget increase into uh, torture houses and safe houses where they um, put political dissidents and imprison them. Um, we've seen 300% increases to other terror programs, um, especially used by the Ministry of Intelligence to monitor and track protesters. Um, so, the reason a lot of Iranian protesters are calling for an end to these talks is because if you if you make this deal with Iran, they get these $90 billion. 
it's sort of it's game over some chunk of that is going to go straight back into the repressive arms that are cracking down on the protesters absolutely um absolutely and we saw in in 2019 under what was called maximum pressure the trump campaign uh to sort of strangle iran's economy we saw that they had to do massive double digit cuts to all their terror programs um they couldn't pay for certain um, repressive propaganda and and sort of torture programs, all of those things they had to cut the budgets for. It's it's sort of it's sort of like you're cutting off their or the the policy cut off Iran's ability to make war on its own people. If, you, if you want to be a bit a bit harsh about it, yeah, no, that, that's exactly what it was. It was it was sanctions deprived them of the ability to wage war both on their neighbors. Um, from Saudi Arabia, UAE, Iraq, um, their enemies like Israel and the United States, and then yes, their people as well. Um, and so it was really it was a huge mistake for Biden to relieve pressure. Um, normally, it's hey, you relieve pressure at the end of a deal. Uh, you keep your own link, leverage. And one of the main reasons nothing, nothing nothing is decided until everything is decided. Exactly. And one of the main issues, one of the I, I think the single largest reason that the negotiations, the nuclear negotiations failed was because Biden actually released sanctions pressure uh, starting really when he took office. His first move on Iran was to cancel certain uh, sanctions and the UN restrictions on Iran um, that curtailed its its weapon sales. Um, and that, that was the very first thing that he did when he took office. Um, and it's and then Iran sort of says, hey, we're getting what we want um, without a deal. Why do we need to have a deal if we can already sort of evade sanctions with no consequence? So uh, before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to let our listeners know about the either the ongoing situation, your work or the work of your colleagues at Jinsa? Well, there's one thing I think is really um Interesting to know. So I imagine a lot of the listeners are paying attention to what's happening in Ukraine. Um, so Iran, since since July, has been launching drones, sorry, has given drones to Russia, which have been launched against Ukrainian civilians, energy infrastructure, one of their huge problems. Now we learn that Iran is actually going to be sending ballistic missiles to Russia, um, which are going to be a game changer. Um, Russia has sort of run out of missiles or is running very low. Iran is bailing them out. Um, they're doing these on the same, Iran is sending these on commercial, commercial jets. So what will, what will happen is there'll be a plane go from Tehran to Moscow, delivers drones, delivers missiles. It'll fly back to Tehran and it'll go to places like London, Paris, Istanbul, um, carrying commercial passengers. So right now, a lot of European nations are actually subsidizing, um, Iran's, uh, efforts to help Russia, uh, kill Iranian, uh, kill U- Ukrainian people. Um, that's what I've been um, focusing a lot of my research on at Jinsa recently. Uh, I actually published a whole list of all the European airports which are taking these Iranian flights. Um, so if you if you look at my Twitter at GL Nerona, um, you can find all that list of airports and see if you are uh, you may be near an Iranian warplane near you. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again to Gabriel Neronia of the Jewish Institute for National Security of America for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.